All of us know people who simply hear only what they want to hear, right? People who have selective hearing. When they don't want to hear something, they just tune out. Yeah? As parents, we experience this. As spouses, we experience this, right? As siblings, as family members, we experience this. As adult children, or even as high school, we can ask my children, sometimes they know dad has selective hearing. There are things that dad doesn't want to hear. But our summons to the word, Jesus calls us to step back and ask ourselves a very sobering question. How well do I hear? What kind of hearing do I have? Let's read these words together from Mark chapter 4. Consider carefully, consider carefully how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is saying, if you hear selectively, you will understand selectively. Think about that. If you just are only interested in part of the data, you only get part of the data. You will not have the whole picture. You will not see yourself or others or anything clearly. So the summons, this word, the summons of the word this morning calls us to, us to soberly hear things that we may not want to hear about ourselves or our world or, the, or even the Lord himself. You know, this whole past year, we've been traveling with Jesus and his disciples uh, to Jerusalem from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, and this morning we'll be concluding that journey. If you want to follow along, you can open your pew Bible. I realize sometimes for some of you, it is very intimidating to open this book. And this book, it's a blue Bible, you can grab one of these, and it's just want to turn to page 878. You don't have to follow along, but you're more than welcome to do so. We're going to be actually moving all around in the Bible this morning, and you're welcome to just listen along. But if, again, if you'd like, you can turn there. This is page 878. This is Luke chapter 19. Again, we're coming to a conclude this, this sermon series and this section of Luke. Luke 9 through 19 is often called by scholars the Lucan travel narrative, quite simply because it's through this whole, this whole section, these really nine or ten chapters, that Jesus is traveling again on his, on his final journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And it's at the end of this section, of uh, this passage actually, that Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem where he will be rejected by the chief priests, and are uh, crucified uh, by the Roman uh, authorities. And so this, uh, this, this final passage here concludes a section, and it's, and it's very important. It's actually a very misunderstood section of Luke. In fact, it's divided into two parts. One part of it you'll be very familiar with. In fact, those of you who've grown up in the church or just even have some familiarity with Christianity, you'll know the story of Zacchaeus and you know, you know the, story, the song of Zacchaeus, etc. But the second part that I'm going to read is actually uh, a story or a parable of Jesus that you may have never heard of before. It's actually quite unfamiliar. It's quite, um, it's quite intriguing in, in, its, in, in the story. So pay attention to both of these. And as these two texts, they're, they're, they're intimately related. They're communicating the same idea in a very different way. But this idea, and this, which is really climactic, which is really bringing to a conclusion all that Jesus has been saying to his disciples, is simply this. We've come to recognize Jesus as king. We've come to recognize Jesus as king only when we've received sinners 
as, as companions. Let me say it a different way. We've, we've, made, we've truly made Christ first in our lives only when we've made failures our friends. That you can measure the, the extent to which I have really made Christ first in my life. When I've gone to those who are difficult, who are simply failures, who have failed again and again, and I have, instead of rejecting them, have befriended them. So we're going to see in this text actually the opposite. We're going to see the negative. We're going to see that we, when we've unfriended those who are failures in our lives, we've actually unfriended Christ himself. So let me read this full text and I'll explain what I mean. But we're going to see here people who are simply followers of Jesus, at least visibly. They look as though they're, they're, they're walking along to Jesus. They're, they're, they're ready to go with Jesus. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And then Jesus befriends the one who you simply can't befriend. Jesus commits the worst PR move you could possibly imagine. And for the sake of one failure, he loses all his friends. And in the second part of the story, we learn of a king who actually, or we learn of one, a nobleman who's about to be made king, and his own subjects reject him, or many of them reject him as king. So again, as we read this, understand we have only made Christ first when we are willing to receive failures as friends. Hear now the word of the Lord taken from Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read the full text now. It's a little bit long, but I'm gonna, and I'll, I'll pause as we go along the way here to explain a few things. <clears throat> he, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was was let me just pause there so far in the story of luke we have seen a number of sinners and tax collectors come to jesus they have been intrigued by jesus they have even the, the, even the story of levi back in luke chapter 5 is a story of jesus going straight to a tax collector saying come follow me and levi rises and he follows jesus so we have seen tax collectors actually come to follow Jesus before, but what we have not seen yet is anyone who is really wealthy. In fact, just in the last chapter, there was a rich man who comes to Jesus asking about eternal life. Jesus uh, responds, and the rich man leaves. So at this point in the passage, we don't really know what Zacchaeus' Zacchaeus's motives are. We've seen tax letters come to Jesus before, but we've never actually seen someone who's rich or wealthy actually receive uh, and, and, and come to follow Jesus. So where, is, where are we going here? Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. Now we're to read into that far more than simply the fact that he was short and couldn't see. In that day and age, someone who had wealth commanded respect. They would have known who this guy was. And they would have known to have, the crowd would have known to have parted. And this was very, very much the crowd's passive-aggressive way of saying, we don't care about you at all. We're not going to let you through. Okay? So already there's this sort of this passive way in, this, in which this, this, this man, very, you can see it very understandably, is being rejected by the crowd. Verse 4, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. 
Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come on down, for I must stay at your house today. Now just stop for a second. Just realize, again, we just are so familiar with this story, we don't realize what Jesus has done. Jesus is walking along, and he just stops, and he looks up in the tree at a random person, and he calls him by name. What impression would that give the crowds? Somehow he had past history with Zacchaeus. But he and Zacchaeus were somehow pretty close. He knows this guy by name. And not only that, what does he say? He says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, who just invites themselves over? Have you ever done that? You know, it's halfway through the day, you're, just, you're somewhere, and you're on the other side of town, there's bad traffic, and you just call someone and you say, hey, I'm going to crash at your place today. I don't, I don't think I've ever done that, right? But how, how could you do that with, unless it was someone who what? Just, you were really, really close with. Right? We tend, most of the time, we tend only to mooch off our best friends. Yeah? So here's Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm crashing at your place tonight. So what impression is Jesus giving to the crowds? What impression is he giving to Zacchaeus? Hey, Zach, what's up? I'm crashing at your house. Jesus is very scandalous, very shrewdly. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's causing a scene. In fact, in the Greek, you can look there again when he says these words, for I must stay. Look at the word must. For I must. You could tr- literally translate it. It's for it is necessary for me to stay at your house today. It is necessary for me. The Greek word day. It's, the, it's this the idea of necessity. I've got to do something. I have to do something. And throughout Luke's gospel, that Greek word day is used again and again for the sense of, of, of big picture divine necessity. Does that make sense? Big picture divine necessity. Use the theological word redemptive historical necessity. Jesus is saying, God insists, God my Father insists that I stop at your house today. At your house, Zacchaeus. This isn't Jesus just like, well, I'm kind of tired and well, well, this guy. No, there's a sense that long awaited, long anticipated, Jesus knew this day would come and that he would encounter this failure. Complete failure. And he did it, and he did it because his father insisted, required, There's a necessity, a a divine necessity in all of this. So Jesus comes to the place. He looks up, calls Zacchaeus by name, tells him what to do, orders him around, and says, I'm I'm crashing at your house today. He immediately befriends Zacchaeus in this most astonishing way. Verse 6, So he, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, and when they saw it, as when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. Now, the word grumble here isn't just kind of like muttering under your breath. The word grumble here has a, has a significance. We'll return to it a little bit later here. But it has a, this is not just grumbling. This is like all-out rejection. This is all-out. This is basically saying, you know what? This is unacceptable. 
I'm done. I've had it to hear, and it's over. They, they are simply uh, they were simply astonished at what Jesus is doing. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And understand, it's not just the idea that, 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 that uh, Zacchaeus sins. That to be a sinner here is to be someone who just, just doesn't care anymore. You know, you, know, you know, sometimes when you fail, you do something, you do something wrong, and you're like, well, I already, I already blew it, might as well just keep on going. Right? And you're on a diet, but then you, 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 just, you give in dessert, and you're like, well, failed, might just wow, wow, right, right? Just keep on going. Right? Or just you miss one day at the gym, and you're like, well, missed the gym, so you just keep right on going. This is Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus is given in. You know why Zacchaeus is given in? He's given in to greed. He's totally given in. See, see Zacchaeus is a sellout, and we'll, get, we'll come back to that briefly here. He's a sellout. He's given in to greed. You know why he's given in to greed? Because he's given up. See, we give in because we've given up. And part of the reason he's given up is because everyone around him, they've also given up on him. Totally given up on him. He's the black sheep. Okay? So they're grumbling about this, this guy is too far gone. He's gone to be a, he's gone, he's, Jesus has gone to be the guest of someone who's too far gone. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. You see that? He calls him Lord. Okay, great. You know, there's the language. There's the words. He uses the word Lord. But how do we know it's real? I mean, come on. This is someone who's too far gone. Behold, Lord, half the half of my goods I give to the poor. Hmm. All right. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it, or I should say, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Do that word also? Since he also, he's looking at the crowds at that point, he also is a son of Abraham. <laughs> Right? You see that? Verse 10, the climactically for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So now that's, that's a story that happens with Jesus' life. That's the situation. But we look in verse 11. As they heard these things. So Luke here is connecting what we just heard in the first 10 verses with this parable that's about to follow. Right? As they heard these things, as this was, right as this was happening, Jesus does a teachable moment and he stops and he tells a parable. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. That's what I said. We're almost in Jerusalem, right? We're almost at the end of the journey. He tells this story because they're near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, there were followers of Jesus who thought that basically God's work was done. It was over. I mean, they were saved. And so surely God didn't want any more people to be saved. It was, it was, the kingdom was going to come, it was all going to end, and the curtain of history was going to come down, and they were done. So it was all the more reason why Zacchaeus was a goner. Because it was too late for Zacchaeus. I mean, the, the show was basically over. And here's Johnny come lately, trying to do whatever. It's too late. I mean, I'm saved, and so God surely is done saving people. Right? I mean, once I'm saved, that's the most important we can go now. Right? Jesus says, whoa, time out. 
let me tell you a parable. If you think that the kingdom of God is right, it's about to come, it's about over. If you think that, that the salvation is just getting done, let me tell you a parable to change that. Okay, so verse, verse, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman, listen to this story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, this is actually a very common thing to do in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire was made up not just of an empire with all these Romans who oversaw everything. The Romans were very, very shrewd. They would come to conquer a land, and for the most part, if possible, they would leave the existing political structures in place. Does that make sense? But the people in charge would just be what we call a puppet king, right, or a puppet leader of some sort. And they would leave the, the existing political structure in place. Why? Well, because it would cause a lot less unrest, right? Killing people is just, it's just a lot of money. And because you're coming and taking over and instituting all that stuff, it's just, it's just, it's just really time-consuming. So best, the, best, the best way to go forward is simply to leave, if you can, leave the political structure in place. And it was very common, actually, for a, a puppet king, when there was a succession, when that puppet king died, there was a new person, and so that person would actually leave their little region where they governed, and they would go off to where? To Rome, where they would be, what? It would be crowned as king by the, re, by the real em, emperor, right? So here is this idea of this local nobleman who's supposed to take control of the region that he's over, and he's going to depart and go. And this is actually something that they would have been actually quite familiar with. In fact, in Jesus' day, in the, in the, within plus or minus 20, 30 years, there were actually a number of situations like this that the people would have known. In fact, one in particular where the guy actually went to Rome, and after he left, the Jews... And Judea actually put together a delegation. And they put together a delegation, and they followed this man to Rome, and then that, de that delegation said something to, to, the, to the, emperor, the emperor. They said, ah, we don't want this guy to be our king. Now listen to this story, okay? A nobleman went to the far off country, verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And a mina here being, I don't know, roughly maybe 30 grand, $30,000 or so. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. This is a very common thing for do. A man of that stature would have had very, very capable, competent servants under him who would have been very good at, at, uh, at, at just conducting business. They would have been very entrepreneurial. They would have, they don't think like slaves, these guys are just like slaves out in, you know, the, the, the farms sort of tilling the fields or something. These are very capable, competent servants. He gave them this money. He says to them, engage in business till I come home, verse 14. But his citizens hated him. Okay, this gets interesting. His own people, they hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this is interesting. So we got a king who's now being rejected. Remember what our previous story. We had Jesus and his followers. They're like, oh yeah, but then what did they do? They turned around and they said, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. What do you think you're doing with Zacchaeus? Okay, so we'll see the parallel in the stories. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, so it did, the delegation didn't work, he ordered these servants to whom he had, had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16, the first, came, the first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Isn't it amazing? 
So you hear this guy, this, this nobleman, he leaves, and really, well, he gives each servant one mina. And honestly, that's, you know, 30 grand, is, yeah, that's a meaningful amount of money, right? But it's not like, this guy isn't, it's not Bill Gates here. This isn't, you know, this isn't someone with all this money and he's just able to get out millions. He doesn't have a lot, especially really relatively humble. But when he returns, he's able to really dish things out, right? He's able to say, hey, look, these 10 minas take over 10 cities. Those of you who have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And the master said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your minor, which I kept hidden away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And the master said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And then he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minas. And the master responded, I tell you that everyone who has I'm sorry, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for, the, as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow, and the curtain falls. What a story that is. Again, this first, the first section of Zacchaeus is well known to many of you, but this, this second story, not so much. You don't hear it in children's church, right? A little complicated economically. The end's a little bit rough, right? Not so much. Now listen, again, I want to just issue a very briefly, or a re, you know, think of how like sometimes my car, I mean, a minivan or something, we've had a few times when the, 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 uh, the, the manufacturer has issued a recall Right, and you go back in to some part and he's, is, is defective, need to be replaced. I'm going to issue a recall on every sermon that's ever been preached on Luke 19. Okay, and here's why. This is so important that you see this. In the text here, look at verse 10 in the text. Verse 10 in Luke chapter 19 says this The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the reason there's a need for the recall here is that we need to ask this very important question. Who are the lost here? Who are the lost? Well, just if you, if you have your Bible, again, just turn a few pages to the left. Okay, look to, back to Luke chapter 15. Who are the lost? See, this is a climactic passage in this section, and this idea of the lost isn't, is right, by no means the first time we've come across this idea. Okay, the law, who are the lost? We'll look back in chapter 15, this is page 874, and look in chapter 15, we see three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of what's often called the prodigal son, or could also be called the parable of the lost son. And in each of these three stories, Jesus has in view not, listen to this, not some sinner who is an outsider, but a sinner who's an insider. Someone who's actually not speaking of to seek and save the lost isn't about doing what we call evangelism, going out there. It's about doing the work of restoration, 
It's about how we treat those who are in here who have failed. Is that making sense? Am I making sense? So look at, for example, look at chapter 15, look at verse 4. I'm sorry, look at verse 6. In verse 6, again, these are, this is the parable of the lost sheep. And it says, and when he, that is the shepherd, came home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Okay, now look again in chapter 15, look in verse uh, 9. Okay, verse 9, this is the parable of the lost coin. Uh, and when she, uh, when she, that is the woman, found the coin she had lost, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost lost. Okay, now look ahead in, this, in, the final, in the final story. Look in verse 32 uh, of chapter 15. It's the very last verse, bottom of 875. And, it is, and, and the, the father says, he says, it, is, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so Luke 19, although we often use just in, often in sort of the Christianese language, we often speak of the lost, of those who don't know Jesus, who are outsiders. Actually, the way Luke uses it, the way the Bible uses it, is to describe those who are actually Christians, or who at least who in name are part of a local community, who are part of the visible community of faith, and through some means start to wander. They start to have difficulties in their marriage. They start to have difficulties in their work life. They start to have difficulties in some way. They become addicted. They, become, they, they, they lose sight of, uh, of, of what's important in life. You name all the thousands of ways that we can just simply lose, lose our way in life. And Jesus is saying, guys, this is so important. How we treat the lost, how we treat the wayward, how we treat you know, those who simply, where did, where did the Joneses go? I haven't seen them in a while. Where, where are they? Or where's Sally? Or where, where's Joe? We just haven't seen them around. And, or they, just, they start going off just to, into some sort of, or they, they pursue some sort of um, way in life that we know just isn't right. And, and we just, we just kind of let them go. Well, that's them. That's their issue. Or do we actually pursue them? See, this language of seeking and saving the lost is actually rooted in the Old Testament. And he's in, the, in, the, in, the, in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34, this is amazing. We see this passage where Ezekiel uh, condemns the kings of Jesus' day. I mean, sorry, of his own day. And these kings are kings who don't care for God's people. And he says, you know, you're out there exploiting the sheep and eating the sheep. And when they, when they, when they stray or when they, when they lose their way as a king, you don't go after them. You're not gathering them. You're not caring for them. And then, this is so cool, Ezekiel actually foretells a day when God himself will come and he will seek and save the lost sheep that he will gather the exiles of Israel. He will gather those who have blown it so badly, who have failed in so many ways, that everyone else has given up on them. And Jesus is saying in Luke 19, he's saying, look, you've come to recognize me as king when you are on board with my plan of restoration, with my rescue plan. So let me just ask you this morning. 
Think of the brothers and sisters that you know who are struggling. Think of, of those you know who, maybe they're no longer here anymore, a good shepherd. Maybe you know them in some other context or situation. Have we gone after them? Have you gone after them? Have you prayed for them? Think of you, the members of your own family, your own spouse, your children. It is so easy to give up. Let me, let me confess to you as a minister. You know, as a minister, I just, um, you know, I get to see, as a minister, I get to see people at their best, and I get to see people at their worst. And overwhelmingly, when I see them at their worst, by God's grace, knowing the, the grace that he's shown me, I'm filled with compassion. I want to walk with them. It's a joy to walk with them. And yet, and yet, <laughs> there are times when that compassion begins to dry up. And I become frustrated, become irritated. What is wrong with this person? What is their deal? Why don't they get it? Right? And I sit there, and at least inside, I begin to shake my head, and I think, you've got to be kidding me. Are you, are you serious? You are pathetic. And the distance between me and them just grows. And part of me just wants to go ballistic. I just want to let them have it. I want to lay into them. I want to, I want, and, and I do that sometimes. I'll be out mowing my lawn, and I can feel the bitterness just growing. I'll be like, that person, how could they do that to me? Don't they know how important I am? Don't they know how amazing I am? And I sit there and I rehearse a conversation in my head of how much they've wronged me. You ever done that? It's a name. It's called brooding. I really realize that I'm a professional brooder. I do. I sit there and like that. Ugh. Right? I hope you die. <laughs> right? And that's, that's how we do. But, but, but God, by God's grace, and it's when I begin to do that, it's when all that starts happening in my mind that this huge red flag comes to me. It's just swoop, and I have to stop and I say, time out, right? Time out. Why? Why is that? Why do I have to do that? Because at the end of the day, my brooding says far more about me than it does about them. It says how much I've lost sight of God's grace in my own life. It shows how far I've lost sight of the fact that I am a 10,000-talent sinner, that I am no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. And it means I've lost sight of the rescue plan. It means I've lost sight of the one who is king. I have no longer made him king in my life, and I don't want him as king. I'm not on board with what he's doing. See, we've, when we unfriend the failures in our lives, I love that word, right? Social media, Facebook, unfriend. I, mean, I unfriended them. They posted a, uh, an article about Trump, and so I unfriended them. We unfriend people all the time, don't we? We do. I'm done with you. We just write them off. And we may like, have words. We may have our own way of doing that. We just go and we tell them off, and we just verbally destroy them. Or we just politely just pretend like they don't exist anymore. But we have ways of unfriending people, the inconvenient people, the problem people in our lives. And Jesus is saying that we, we, when we unfriend failures, we've unfriended him. Okay? That if, but on the other hand, when we, if we have truly made Christ first in our lives, we will know that when we have refused to do that, when we have made failures our friends. Okay? 
It's just a very simple idea, but a very, very important one in this story. Let me just, let me just as, a, as an aside here, let me just make this point. It's so important. In the story of, of Zacchaeus, we see a man who uh, has totally compromised in every way. A, a tax collector was the epitome of a sellout. The tax collector's theme, their, their theme for their life, their life verse, if you will, is if you can't beat him, join him. And the Romans couldn't be beaten. And so you joined them. And so you, t- you collected taxes on their behalf and you skimmed at the top. It was, it was just um, it was a fast moneymaker. And they were despised, they were hated, and rightly so. And Jesus is saying, yes, they're hated, but I came for Zacchaeus. And are you on board? Are you on board with that? You know, there was, um, and we see Zacchaeus' real change. How do we know Zacchaeus has really changed? Come on, you businessmen. How do we know Zacchaeus really changed? Money. Right? How he used his money was just totally changed. I give away half my possessions, and if I've defrauded anybody, what? I give back four times. There's nothing more loud or louder. There's nothing louder about your heart. Nothing says more about who you are than how you spend your money. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, it is clear that true repentance, real repentance, involves a revolution in how we think about money. Let me just tell you a brief story. So let's listen to this testimony by a man. This this testimony is probably written a number of years ago. He writes this, I was in business in Hollywood, and I worked day and night to succeed. Like most Americans, I had that desire to build my own empire. I was the lo- and I was the Lord of my empire. In my ignorance, I had no knowledge of God, though I had been baptized when I was 12. But I was not at all interested in church through, co- through, through a college and graduate school and in the business and, and throughout my business in Hollywood. Then one day, in the providence of God, I was introduced to Christ. My wife and I had been married for about two years when the Lord impressed us through a series of circumstances that we should surrender everything to the Lord Jesus. So we wrote out and, we, so we wrote out and signed a contract. I'm a businessman by trade, so I figured that is the best way to register our commitment. So we signed that contract that afternoon in 1951. About 24 hours later, in a way that was life-changing, God met us and gave him a vision for the world. And that vision became something called Campus Crusade for Christ. This guy's name is Bill Bright. You've ever heard of Bill Bright? But it was through that, and it began, he goes on to say, he goes on to say these, these really important words. He, he, says about, um, he says, my wife and I had known, came to know an adventure that lasted more than 53 years throughout our marriage. And he says this, had there been no contract, in my opinion, there would have been no vision. God brought us to the place where we made total, absolute, and irrevocable surrender. Then he knew, then he knew he could trust us. That is, he, God, knew that he could trust us. And from there on, the vision began to be implemented and still is being implemented all over the world today. From a practical point of view, he writes, we view God as someone we know we can trust implicitly. Isn't that powerful? That's what happened to Zacchaeus here. 
I mean, literally, Jesus confronts him with this radical grace. I am friending you forever. I am going to be known publicly with you. I don't care what people think. I'm with you. I'm present with you. I will abide with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will go to the cross for you. And Zacchaeus is like, done. I'm done. I'm so overcome by that grace, by that love, that I'm ready to surrender in full. And the crowds, the crowds don't believe it. They won't have it. Let me, let me just close with this. Only problem people love problem people. Let me say it again. Only problem people love If you think everyone else is a problem person, if you think your spouse is the problem person, if you think your children are the problem people, if you think your congregation is the problem people, you will not love them unless you know that you yourself are a problem person. Let me close with this. A Christian wife wrote recently, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. She discovered very, very, in a very difficult way, she discovered that her husband had been looking at pornography, was addicted to pornography. And listen, listen to what she writes here. At the suggestion of our marriage counselor, my husband and I, my husband joined a men's accountability group in our church. And I, the wife, I joined the counterpart group for wounded wives. After a few weeks, I began to notice a pattern. My, my husband emerged from these meetings excited, refreshed, focused and challenged, equipped and connected to me. I walked out of my support group for wounded women, angry, more and more offended by his sin. The difference, she writes, the difference is that his group offered forgiveness. My group offered coddling. The men in my husband's support group were brutally honest about their, failing, their failings, but they ended each meeting with an assurance of pardon. You are forgiven. The women in my group indulged, affirmed, sympathized with one another. I was taught how to cope with my husband's failures while being shielded from the reality of my own failures. My support group was full of wonderful, well-intentioned women inviting me to a lot to live an unexamined life. Wow, isn't that insightful? It felt so good to be affirmed every week, but at the, at, at the same time, I, I couldn't deny the widening gap between my husband and me. In desperation, I begged God to open my eyes. Forget changing my husband, I finally prayed. Change me, even if it upends everything I've ever thought was true. And he did change me. The Holy Spirit showed me that my complaining, my criticism, and my controlling ways had damaged my husband every bit as much as his sexual sins had hurt me. And she goes on to say in Luke 7, Jesus tells us whoever has been forgiven much loves much. This explains why my husband emerged from his accountability group full of love and joy while I slid deeper into anger and despair. She continues, so the first time I realized our marriage woes weren't his problem, they were our problem. No longer was I the virtuous offended victim. We were both sinners in desperate need of God's grace. Once I realized this, I went to my husband and confessed my sin. This completely changed the dynamic in our marriage. I could spend all day describing the goodness in which my husband and I now operate. See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
He did. That seeking and saving required him to say to his father, not my will, but your will be done. If we are to be part of his rescue plan, we must know that we too are problem people and we must surrender and say, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how astonishing are your ways. It is amazing that it was necessary for Jesus to go to Zacchaeus. Father, there are people here this morning whom it was necessary for them to be here. Father, it was necessary in your purposes, in your mighty big picture story, for them to hear of one who comes and who calls us by name and who welcomes us and who calls us to go and lose everything, to lay down our lives, to call you Lord and to know peace, a peace that is found only in your will. Father, forgive me for my pride, for my superiority, for my self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Father, forgive me for the ways that I, I'm not on board with what you're doing in my marriage, with how I'm not on board with what you're doing with my children, for how I'm not on board with what you're doing in my congregation, in, my wider, in the wider community. Father, I pray, indeed, that you would enable us to recognize Jesus as Lord by receiving failures in love. So, Lord, please, let us leave here, Father, with 